Well, welcome back, church family, to our House to House series. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles, open up that New Spring app. We are not wasting any time today. But if you are just joining us, you have joined us in our conversation around house to house, how we believe your home is central to God's plan. And we find this foundation in Scripture, specifically in Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says this. I'm going to read this for us. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. Can you imagine that? And they were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, here it is, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We've been talking about how we see in the scripture evidence that the twin engines of the church are meeting in the corporate gathering, which I know we are all more than excited to do, but it's not just that. It's also in our private homes, in the big and in the small, in the public and in the private. So last week we covered what it could mean for our homes to be homes of welcome, hosting people in such a way that it changes the world. And listen, if you missed last week, (laughs) go ahead and pause this one, run it back, watch last week, then come back and watch this week because it was absolutely beautiful. I honestly couldn't believe that I got to be in the room when we were recording it. But as we were talking about what it means to host people, I couldn't help but think about this question and, and you can write this down if you want, but here's the question. What would it look like to host God? How would God want to be hosted? If the presence of God wanted to come into your house, which he does, by the way, how would he want to be welcomed into your house? And actually, there's a pretty amazing New Testament story that helps us answer that question. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pause this video You as a family, as roommates, by yourself in your home, I'm gonna invite you to read Luke 7, verses 36 through 50 out loud together. Hear your voice, read this story over your family, over your roommates, over your home. Y'all go ahead and read this together. Now, if you're anything like me, you grew up with a background like me, I read that story and I immediately hear the voice of Cece Winans in my ear and the sweet melody of Alabaster Box. You know, when she's like, you weren't there the night he found me. And listen, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go to wherever streaming applies. I almost said iTunes, but that's no longer a thing and I'm 97 years old. But go wherever streaming applies and listen to it because it's amazing. But this story is so beautiful. It's so real. It's so raw. There's such a personal encounter with Jesus, but it helps us answer this question, how does God want to be welcomed into our homes? Answer, the presence of God is welcomed into our homes through our 
worship. Write that down. The presence of God is welcomed into our homes through our worship. Now, I know as soon as I say worship, maybe what you're already thinking, oh yeah, 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 throw on my favorite hill song and, and let it ride, okay? But let's just like pause for a second and let's today, I'm gonna invite you to slow down and momentarily remove whatever preconceived notions you have about worship. You know, whether you like, you're the, the hand raiser or just the slow swayer, you know this? Uh, whether you love the traditional hymns or the modern worship, whatever it is, let's just put those to the side for a second and believe with me that the word of God is living and active and the Holy Spirit has something more to reveal to us today about what worship is. Because in the story, we see that worship is so much more. In the story, we see Jesus revealing the very heart of worship. That first and foremost, worship is a motivation of the heart. First and foremost, worship is a motivation of the heart because you can sing and not worship. You can give and it not actually be an offering. You can go to church and have never fully experienced true worship. So as we lean in and we see what the story reveals, I would love for us to take stock and see, okay, this is a personal question. If my heart were to be revealed today, would it look like the heart of worship revealed in this story? If someone were to tell the story of my life one day, could they teach the lesson of the heart of worship that they teach from this heart revealed in Luke 7? Because worship's not primarily about music, it's about the motivation of the heart. And so we're gonna look at four motivations of the heart today that should define our worship through the hearts of two people, a man named Simon and an unnamed woman. So let's walk through these four motivations of the hearts together. When it comes to worship, y'all can write these down. Motivation number one, worship is desperate to get to, cheat to Jesus, period. T. Worship is desperate to get to Jesus, period, with a T at the end, because that means it's more serious. All right, let's talk about dinner time for a second. Because usually when I mention food in a message, people usually lean back in, including myself. So this was around dinner time. And meals in this culture are different than ours. Meals were actually very open in that time. In Eastern culture, uh, actually like strangers could come in and experience dinner with you. You had an open courtyard. They even would have like um, cushions lining the outside of the wall so that strangers could come in, sit down, have a conversation, over listen to yours, and then maybe head back out. Weird to us, okay, normal to them. I can't imagine someone coming in my home around dinner time. First of all, you're only gonna find takeout, so participate if you want to. But I don't have cushions lining my room for strangers to come, but they would. So Simon invites Jesus publicly to this home meal, and evidently this woman hears about it, and takes an opportunity to get to Jesus. Why? Okay, let's use biblical context here that at this point, Jesus had already been traveling around and teaching and preaching. So this woman had probably already heard Jesus preaching before, perhaps often. If you go to the Matthew account of the same story, um, right before this story in Matthew 11 is the, the promise, the invitation that we all love from Jesus where he preaches, come to me, all who are heavy, laden, and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Can you imagine what had happened in this woman as she had heard this? How her heart burned within her to just get to the presence of Jesus. So the house is open for dinner, so she thinks this is my shot. Now understand, this would have been a big deal for her to enter the house. Why? Okay, let's go back to what Luke said. This is an unnamed woman who was a sinner. Now, this was probably um, Luke's kindness to withhold her name and to withhold her sin from the story. But most commentaries agree that this was Luke's polite way of saying, this woman who was a sinner, you know, who was a prostitute, that was her reputation, her story. So it would have been, I mean, blasphemous, uh, the audacity in broad daylight in front of everyone for her to enter the home of a purist like Simon. I mean, imagine the scene. Her reputation would have preceded her. As she walks into the house, imagine the, the side glances and the murmurs that she would have heard. Imagine the hatred and the demeaning faces of people that looked at her. But get this, her desire to just be in the presence of Jesus was greater than her fear of man. She just had to get to, I don't care about the murmurs. I don't care about the whispers. I don't care what they think. I just have to get to this man who said, if I come to him, I can have rest. The presence was her priority. I'm begging and believing God that it's becoming the priority in my home and in your home. Worship is desperate to get to Jesus, period. But that's just motivation number one. Motivation number two, worship is about what I can give, not what I can get. Hope y'all ready because I'm about to preach. Okay, maybe you're thinking, you know, well, Simon invited her. Didn't he want the presence too? Like, it seemed like he wanted Jesus near. Well, okay, let's start with Simon because just because you have invited the presence of God does not mean you have actually welcomed the presence of God. Okay, just because you've invited doesn't mean you've welcomed. So let's, let's talk about who Simon is. Simon is a Pharisee. He's a religious leader of the day. At this point um, in the story, the Pharisees and Jesus, they don't have bad blood. Now, eventually the Pharisees would be the group of people who lead a coup to kill Jesus, but I digress. At this point, they hadn't decided that he was public enemy number one, but they had decided that he was enough a person of interest that they needed to keep an eye on him. So get this, Simon invites Jesus because he wants to check him out. Simon invited the presence of Jesus but he did it with an agenda, with an agenda. If you look at this, um, there was a custom in the day when someone would come to your house, okay, everybody walked everywhere in sandals, right? Um, a lot of you women refuse to wear sandals right now because you haven't been able to get a pedicure in quite a few weeks, and so you're keeping on the closed-toed shoes. I get it. I'm with you. But in that time, sandals were the fashion of the day. But it's also a desert and a dry place, so your feet were filthy, and usually when you would enter into someone's home, how they would welcome you is they would wash your feet because they were filthy. Additionally, how they would welcome you is they would greet each other with a holy kiss, which again, sounds unusual to us, but a kiss on the cheek was a sign of friendship, of welcome, and of approval. If they really wanted to welcome you, they would take some essential oils and, you know, splash it on you to wash off a little of the stench that you get from walking in the desert. But we see Simon does not do even one of these traditional forms of welcome. Why? 
because Simon just wanted to be known as someone who had Jesus in the house, but not so far as letting people know he was Lord of the house. He wanted the reputation that Jesus was there. He didn't want what it took to show that Jesus was actually Lord of that house. You even see this evidence in verse 39 with his response to the reception of the woman. He says, if this man were a prophet, (laughs) he would know what she's done and he would not welcome her. Simon was very logical and there's nothing wrong with being logical, but sometimes logic can explain away a genuine encounter with God. So let's go to the woman. What a different encounter that they have. Jesus says in verse 44 that from the moment he entered the house, she would not stop kissing his feet, washing them with her tears and her hair. So if that's true, I'm just take some notes here. If that's true, then the woman had to have gotten there early. That's just a little plug for when we gather together again. The woman would have gotten there early, prepared, waiting near the the door for Jesus to arrive. She probably expected, as was the custom, that as Jesus entered, someone would have washed his feet, usually a lowly servant. And now imagine the shock to her when Jesus walks in and no one washes his feet. (laughs) She's like, no, 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 no. Not on my watch. So in that moment, she didn't come prepared with a basin and a towel. She had no water, but she used what she had to pour it out on Jesus. I imagine as she's kneeling at his feet and and she's crying that she sees the the dirt traces of her tears begin to wash off of his feet. And then she's thinking, well, I don't have a towel, so I'll use use my hair to clean off the the rest of the dirt. And she takes this perfume and she pours it out on his feet. Imagine this. In 1 Corinthians, it says that the most um, glorious part of a woman's body is her hair. She used the most glorious part of her body to wash the most dishonorable part of someone else's body. And she doesn't do it quickly, has to just get through it or because this was religious tradition. No, she takes her time and persists to kiss his feet. This woman's worship of Jesus was entirely about giving. This vial of perfume would have cost about a year's wages. It cost her her humility to kiss the dirty feet of God and to wash them with her tears. So do not get this. Do not miss this. I want you to get this. Don't miss this. Simon invited Jesus with an agenda. The woman came to Jesus with an offering. Simon wanted to prove him, wanted Jesus to prove himself. The woman wanted to humble herself. Simon was looking to get something. This woman was looking to get something out. Come on. So it begs the question today, if Jesus were to walk into the room, what would you do? In your living room right now, in your kitchen, by yourself or with your family, if the presence of God were to walk into the room, would he feel welcomed there? Would it be like Simon where he finds a heart with an agenda and a list of questions that he better answer before you decide to worship him? Or would he find us like the woman ready to pour out whatever we have at his feet? Listen, I get it. We all have preferences. Like there's nothing inherently wrong with preferences. You know, we all have song preferences. Some of us prefer the old hymns. Some of us prefer, I don't know, Hillsong's remixed White Album. We have a preference of environment. Some of us love, um, we miss it. You know, we miss the lights and the big auditorium and all that. Some of us have a preference of a smaller, more intimate space. But can I just encourage you, 
that if those things continuously hinder our worship, then we have begun to worship our preferences and not the presence. Preferences aren't inherently wrong, but I do not worship my preferences. I worship to the level that I think God is worth. That has to be our posture. If you've ever left a worship service and thought, like me, I don't know, I just didn't get anything out of that. Well, ain't nobody in that room there supposed to be worshiping me. We are all there meant to be pouring out what we have at the feet of Jesus. So let's take a break, shall we? (laughs) And talk about this in our rooms to take a moment and a breath and ask this question. Okay, search your heart. What personal preferences usually get in the way of your worship? Whatever it is, let's talk about it now. Okay, that wasn't too bad, was it? Good, I hope y'all got some, some good things uh, out just there, but we gotta keep moving forward in this motivation of the heart. Motivation number three, worship gets vulnerable. Who loves vulnerability? Not many of us, I get it, right? But imagine how vulnerable this scene was. How many actual tears do you have to produce to wash someone's feet? Scientifically, A lot. Like that's how many tears you have to produce to wash someone's feet. And this is something crazy that I learned as I was preparing for this. Y'all don't miss this. That in her profession, if she truly were a prostitute, it would have been her training to cut off her emotions, especially in front of a man. To harden her heart and to become a facade because she was already in too vulnerable vulnerable a position. She can't show weakness in emotion. But I hope what we see through her heart that worship required her emotions to flow. When you have come in contact with the one who can fulfill the desire of your heart, who has erased the, the penalty of sin and death, who has given us purpose and breathed the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, when you've encountered that person, emotions should flow out. That should be the natural response. So can I just encourage and exhort you today that allowing, allowing your emotions to flow in worship is not weakness. It's not embarrassing. Can I say this? It's not just for women. And it is not just for the feely worshipers. Emotions reveal the heart. So listen, whatever emotions you have today, if you're angry, pull that up to the feet of Jesus and let that pour out in worship. If you're hurt, pour that out at his feet. He's not scared of your emotions. He also has emotions and created your emotions, by the way. If you're joyful and happy, why don't you jump around in your living room today and sing and shout and celebrate because you don't need to be ashamed of your joy either in a culture that's swirling with so much negativity. Maybe they need to see some worship of joy. If you're not sure how you feel about Jesus, but you feel some type of way right now, use that. If you feel awkward, be awkward. Use whatever emotions you have and let it fuel your worship. God doesn't need your perfection. He wants your reality. He wants you, your heart, right now, however it is. And that's what we see with this woman. Catch this, y'all. In Proverbs 7, verses, I think it's 16 and 17, suggests that the very same perfume that she used to pour on the feet of Jesus 
would have previously been the perfume that she used to anoint her bed and to anoint her body for sin. How vulnerable do you have to be to bring evidence of your past sin as the very means of worship that you're pouring out on such a perfect man? Incredible is right. You bring whatever you have, even evidence of past sin. God will not reject or rebuke someone who's coming with that pure of worship. I love how even in this, she has a testimony that she is showing. What used to define me as a sinner will now be used as my means for worship. Yes, I have so much that I've done wrong, but look how much I have been forgiven. Worship gets vulnerable, which leads us to our fourth and final point. Motivation number four, worship is for forgiven sinners. All right, may we not miss the final lesson of Jesus here in verse 47. Um, Her worship was evidence of how much she'd been forgiven. So actually, we're gonna get participatory right now. I was afraid I was gonna mess up that word, but I didn't. Um, So I'm gonna need my assistants. Tara, will you please remove this table? Uh, Greg and Bridget, where y'all at? Come on, saints, gather around. We're gonna do a little... um, display of what this scripture, actually, this is Bridget, by the way. Say, hey, Bridget. Hi. This is Greg. Say, hey, Greg. Hey. But for now, you can stand at my right hand. Um, But for now, Greg is Simon. Bridget is the unnamed woman. And just totally hypothetical, I'm Jesus (laughs) in this situation. But one thing I love about the Bible, how good it is, is that it is amazing in its grandeur, but also in its detail. Because there's right there towards the end of the story where there's a moment where it says, then Jesus turned from Simon and spoke to the woman. Now, it wouldn't have looked like this because they weren't standing. So I'm gonna show you what this looked like. Okay, Bridget, please don't kiss my feet. (laughs) He turned from Simon, but he turned to the woman. But he continues to talk to Simon. (laughs) Do you know how disrespectful that is? To turn your back on someone while still talking to them, while looking at someone else? Because Jesus was showing, even in his posture, Simon, I know that you are the religious leader of the time, but right now this woman is the teacher. Simon got Jesus's back, and this woman got Jesus's face. A moment of intimacy, a moment, I'm sure even in the, I'm sure the room felt about like what it feels in this room right now. What is happening? And even in this posture, Jesus is preaching a message. Her worship is proof she's been forgiven. Simon, your lack of worship is proof that you have not. This woman got his face. You know, there's even um, references in the Old Testament uh, and and often in the New that presence can actually be translated face. And you know that song we've been singing, may his favor be upon you, the blessing, which Bridget sings better than any human ever. She didn't tell me to say that, I just did. And it ends with that blessing of may his face shine upon you because even ancient Israel knew that the real blessing, the real treasure, the real prize was the face of God. That was the real blessing. 
May his face shine upon you. So in your rooms, give a round of applause for my assistants, please, as my 32-year-old body tries to get up. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Sorry. But listen, don't miss this face moment. There's actually, actually evidence that, you know, when you hold a baby, how you look in its face and you talk to that baby the way you would never talk to a real-life human being? You know what I'm talking about? I love you, my little baby. If you came and said that, I love, I'd be like, where are the cops? Like that's, that would be the encounter. But there's something in a child's brain that is activated at the countenance of its caregiver. That when you look at the face of a baby like that, there's a center of their brain that responds in joy that it does not respond to anything else. Church, do not miss this. There's a part there is a part of your joy that will never be activated unless you learn to live face to face with your Savior. Intimately, awkwardly, vulnerably, desperate, face to face. But I'm believing God is making us into that kind of church, that kind of people who are desperate just for the face, the real blessing, the real treasure. And listen, this kind of worship is not just for an unnamed woman who was a prostitute. This isn't just for Malik, the worship leader. This isn't just for David Hall, the campus pastor. This is for Tyrone, who's the police officer. This is for Hissy, who's the teacher. This is for Danelle, who works at a brokerage firm. This is for John, who's a construction worker. The only prerequisite to this kind of worship is an answer to this question. And this will be the last question, but I hope it's the question that rings in our ears. Have you been forgiven? If the answer is yes, then you have plenty of reasons to worship. So we're actually gonna do that now. I'm gonna invite the band up. Y'all come up here with me um, as we worship together as one family all across the state, all across the world right now, you are invited to this kind of worship. And hey, listen, I get <laughs> how awkward it can be in your living room right now. Listen, I'm preaching this message today and I've sat in my living room with my roommates and felt how awkward this can be. You're like sitting in your living room and the lights don't dim and like the music's not loud enough to cover the sound of your voice. So you're like, my heart is an open space. How's that coffee? Is it good? Yeah, I love this coffee. You know, I get it. But can I ask you this? Has Jesus let you off the hook this week? Then you have a reason to worship. Think back the past year. Has Jesus's forgiveness been evident in your life? Then pour it out today. Has he come through on a promise or a provision? Then pour out your praise wherever you are today and know that the presence and the face of God is drawn to those who humble themselves in that way. Listen, I don't have all the answers. I don't know your situation. I don't know your circumstances. But one thing I do know, I was lost, but now I am found. And so I'm gonna worship that with that reality that I have been forgiven. Come on, let's sing now.